Welcome to End of the Line, Chapter 2, Boarding the Pennsylvania. Carrying a surveyor's rod and chain through the red clay of backwoods Georgia was such tiring work that young Alexander Cassatt considered abandoning railroading altogether. He wrote to his father from Dalton in mid-November 1860 that anyone can build a railroad. What do you think I got paid for my three days' work at surveying? Work as hard as any blacksmith's with the continual risk of falling down and breaking my neck or my transit, at least. Why, five dollars. He continued in exasperation. Any little pettifogging lawyer would have charged and been paid fifty for the same amount of work, and yet I would not have been paid without a great deal of grumbling if I had charged more. And there are several men who call themselves surveyors who would have been glad to have done the work for that. For a young man, not yet twenty-one, late of Heidelberg, Darmstadt, and Rensselaer, the lack of appreciation was galling. Dalton, Georgia, could not have been too congenial for the young cosmopolite. It was a far cry from the sophisticated Astor House or the cultural amenities of Philadelphia. But Dalton had some charms. Encircled by the blue ranges of the Cohutta Mountains, planted with large shade trees whose branches arched across the broad streets, the town of less than 500 citizens had certain bucolic advantages for a young man who would always prefer the countryside to the metropolis. Dalton had none of the classic architecture associated with the Old South, it was a shipping point for the copper mine in Tennessee and hauled to Dalton by wagon. The railroad would facilitate moving the ore. Even more important, it would serve as a vital transportation terminus for the Confederate troops in the coming conflict. Alexander relished the ride out of the small town, beyond the main avenue of gabled houses and sweeping green lawns, to the farms some distance from the county seat. He discovered a farmer, one Mr. Kaiser, who tended a vineyard which inspired the disgruntled engineer to think about going into the grape-growing business himself. Accustomed to wine from his European days, he believed that his countrymen could be persuaded to buy the produce of the local grapes. Mr. Kaiser was selling his wine at 75 cents a bottle, or $3.75 a gallon, which encouraged Alexander to think he could make his fortune in a similar vineyard. Not that he was tired of engineering, he assured his father, but I'm tired of doing nothing. I am afraid the prospects for engineers are not going to improve. This was his analysis during a period of the greatest railroad building the country would ever see. But conditions in the South in the fall of 1860 might have tempted even a more experienced observer than Alexander to believe America's industrial revolution and accompanying transportation expansion would be indefinitely delayed. Secession dominated the scene. Only a few weeks before, Abraham Lincoln had been elected president by a minority of the Northern voters and those of the two Western states, California and Oregon. Georgia had preferred Kentucky's John C. Breckinridge, who espoused the slave owner's cause in opposition to Stephen Douglas, the Democratic candidate who reluctantly opposed them. Alexander Cassatt, 
in after years such a staunch Democrat, expressed no views to his father about the election. But he realized that for some southern states, secession had gone beyond the talking stage. He used the possibility of war to push his vineyard scheme. If there is a dissolution of the Union, it will break up all the railroad enterprise, but it will not hurt vine growing, he wrote his father, failing to realize that southern farmlands would be the battlefield. His own future depended on the political situation. There is no use my going further now until I hear what the South is going to do. Although he considered that he and his father might do well to embark on a joint venture of wine production, he had also made other plans. My expenses here are small, not more than 10 or $12 a month, and I can afford to wait a few weeks and have money enough to go to Texas in case Major Lee calls me. The Major Lee he mentioned must have been Robert E. Lee, then serving in the United States Army in the West. A cavalry officer in 1860, Lee had begun his army career in the Engineering Corps. Perhaps Alexander Cassatt thirsted for military action, the sound of bugles, the testing under fire. Certainly, he would have been an asset as an engineering officer, if not as a cavalryman, for he rode well. But he never saw a battlefield. When those brutal, bitter fights at Manassas, Gettysburg, Shiloh, and Chancellorsville decimated a whole generation, his name was not on any muster call. It was not fear that kept him from combat. Later in life, he showed physical courage of a high order. But his failure to enlist in either army, Confederate or Union, is not easily understood. He had no ideological convictions against war. In fact, he admired the military life and encouraged his own son to follow that career. In a time of violent passions, he stood aside and worried instead about his business prospects, his vineyard, an unattractive stance in a young man from whom gallantry and ardor were expected. He claimed family obligations as a pressing inducement to enter winemaking. Alec reminded his father that his sister, Mary, then enrolled in the Academy of Arts in Philadelphia, and not finding the instruction to her liking, would, in three years, want to go to Rome to study. By that time, our vineyards would be in bearing, and you could afford to go and leave me here to work for you. No doubt Robert Cassatt's perspective was clearer and he did nothing to encourage his son. Alexander's situation as a Yankee in a state burgeoning with bellicose secessionists did not overly trouble him. There is no evidence that he held abolitionist views, which would have angered his neighbors, and he appeared willing to remain in Dalton and proceed with grape-growing. To tempt his father further, he sent him a sample bottle of wine distilled from the local grapes. But long before Georgia left the Union on January 19, 1861, Alexander Cassatt had abandoned both the vineyards and the rod and chain to come north. All work on the Dalton-Knoxville Road was postponed indefinitely, which left the Yankee surveyor jobless. Georgia, which eventually became one of the bloodiest battlegrounds, had neither time nor money for building railroads, a short-sighted policy 
but understandable since Confederate resources were so limited. North of the Mason-Dixon line, conditions were very different. Lines proliferated during the four years of the struggle, and Yon Cassatt would be among those profiting from the growth. His immediate concern was to find another job, and Philadelphia seemed the obvious place to launch the search. By the spring of 1861, he had been hired as a rodman in the engineering corps by the Pennsylvania Railroad, where he worked on the construction between Frankfurt Junction, a few miles north of Philadelphia on the Delaware River, and the main line. Several years before the war, the railroad had bought from the state for $7.5 million the main line of public works, a complicated and primitive network of railroads, locks, canals, and bridges, which carried goods and passengers west. Under J. Edgar Thompson, the main line was gradually being replaced by 236 miles of railroad, running through a series of tunnels and over new gradients to Pittsburgh, where Thomas A. Scott supervised the expanding company offices. By 1861, Scott had been temporarily relieved of his duties as vice president, a post to which he had been promoted in the spring of 1860, to manage the arduous transport of the Union Army. As Assistant Secretary of War, he directed the movement of Northern troops with great dispatch and efficiency. It had been Scott's idea to protect Lincoln from assassination attempts on his entrance into Washington by secretly spiriting the newly elected president through Baltimore after the announcement of a different route. Scott also initiated the Secret Service by hiring the Pinkerton detectives who guarded the railroads from sabotage by Southern spies and sympathizers. Among the young men appointed by Thompson to manage the expanding railroad in the years before the Civil War, Thomas A. Scott, of all the railroad's officers, can most justifiably be castigated by later critics as a robber baron. An affable, handsome man of extraordinary charm, he had risen rapidly through the ranks of the railroad from his humble beginnings as a station agent in western Pennsylvania. Losing his father at age 12, he had worked in a country store and in the toll collector's office of the main line of public works, before his discovery by Herman Haupt, the engineering genius who planned the railroad's western development. After working for some years in Pittsburgh, where he hired an ambitious young Scotsman, Andrew Carnegie, as a telegrapher, Scott moved into the front office. Adept at public relations, he managed to conciliate those irate Pittsburgh citizens who disliked the Pennsylvania for its effort to keep the Baltimore and Ohio out of the city. He persuaded the state legislature by methods which could be considered questionable to abolish the hated tonnage tax on railroad freight and generally manipulated political events in favor of his employers. While Scott's chief, Thompson, was inclined to be aloof, reticent, and shy in public, the younger man entered the bitter battle for railroad supremacy with enthusiasm. Scott was energetic, convivial, and diplomatic, 
but something of a plunger in contrast to the cautious Thompson. In his own way, each avidly pursued the expansion of the railroad. Scott and Thompson were impressed with young Cassatt, and the president furthered his protege's career at every opportunity. Thompson also shared his young engineer's continental interests. He had traveled to England to study that country's civil and mechanical engineering feats, applying his knowledge to the upgrading of the Philadelphia and Columbia line, which served as a basis for the road west. Cassatt, in turn, respected Thompson and relied on his advice when he later considered leaving the railroad for other opportunities. How Alexander Cassatt, a healthy young man in his early 20s, escaped being drafted into the Union Army is unknown. He may have purchased a substitute, a common practice among Northerners who did not wish to fight. Possibly, Scott secured his exemption, pleading his engineering skills as a vital adjunct to the railroad and the war effort. Alexander did not remain long at his lowly Rodman's job on the Frankfurt Junction. From a position as assistant engineer in the construction of the connecting railway linking the Pennsylvania to the Philadelphia and Trenton Road, he was sent to Renovo, Pennsylvania in 1864 as resident engineer of the middle division of the Philadelphia and Erie. With its terminus at Renovo, on the western branch of the Susquehanna, the Erie linked the state's coal fields to the eastern markets. By 1866, young Cassatt had become superintendent of the Warren and Franklin Road, headquartered in Williamsport, and was living in Irvington, not far from Erie. Renovo and Irvington have all but disappeared but in those years they were growing rapidly under the impetus of oil discovery and coal mining. In Irvington, on the northern banks of the Allegheny River, Alexander's family joined him and set up temporary housekeeping. The senior Cassatt was willing to abandon close supervision of his own commercial interests to encourage his son in what he suspected would be a career which could give the family solid security. By this time, Mary had left Philadelphia for Paris, where, with the reluctant permission of her father, she lived temporarily with family friends. In brotherly fashion, Alexander scoffed at Mary's desire for a serious artistic career. While still in Dalton, he had informed his father that his sister must be persuaded to study geometry because she has no sense of perspective. He later changed his mind, but in the beginning, Alexander had grave doubts about Mary's talents. Condescendingly, he reported, she thinks she can become an artist, poor child. While Alec had doubts about his sisters realizing her artistic dreams, Mary had more foresight or more faith in her brother. In the days of their Hardwick childhood, she had recognized his mechanical talents. She also early analyzed his temperament and hoped that his ability and drive and rare good sense would bring him a satisfying career. Sometime during his stay in Irvington, Alexander met Harriet Buchanan, 
niece of the former president and daughter of the Reverend and Mrs. Edward Y. Buchanan of Oxford, a suburb of Philadelphia. Harriet, the second eldest of five daughters, was a striking beauty with luxuriant chestnut hair, sparkling dark eyes, and classic features, a lovely figure in her graceful crinolines. No wonder Alexander Cassatt, impressionable and seeking feminine companionship, was attracted to such a belle. They became engaged shortly before the close of the war, probably while she was visiting her brother James, who was then working for an oil company in Tidiute near Irvington. Far from Philadelphia and its cultural and social interests, Alexander would naturally be drawn to such a young woman, no matter how incompatible their temperaments. Neither Irvington nor Tidiute offered many competitors to Harriet, and the rough railroad towns drew women of a far different type. James, writing to another sister, described Tidiante as all built of wood and the mud is very deep. Also, there is considerable conversation about oil and big wells and all that sort of thing. Take it all together, I know of several places where I would rather live, but of course this is confidential. We have had rain here all week, and I have been desperate. Alexander Cassatt also may have been desperate, which would promote romance. He enjoyed music, the theater, and reading, particularly Tennyson. In Tidiute, the most he could expect was a checkers game with Harriet. On the surface, the pair seemed ideally matched. Alexander gave every indication of a brilliant career, but his professional prospects were only one of his obvious talents. Standing well over six feet, with a virile athletic build, he was clean-shaven, with vibrant dark blue eyes and thick sandy hair. His appearance alone would stir the heart of most young women. He was not only handsome, but well-born, well-educated, interested in art, music, and literature, an ornament to civilized society. His eligibility as a husband was apparent. Yet almost immediately, impediments arose to thwart their union. Harriet was often ill, liable to depressions and crying spells, her indisposition went beyond the normal vapors expected of a sheltered Victorian miss of good family. Then, too, she did not really enjoy masculine society. Perhaps the attentions of a healthy, ardent young man, even one as considerate and gentlemanly as Alexander Cassatt, proved too offensive. Her upbringing in the smug, highly moral, prudish parsonage would tend to discourage passionate emotion. Psychologists might analyze her frequent retreats into illness as a reluctance to face the physical reality of conjugal life. The relationship between the engaged pair soon deteriorated. The Reverend Buchanan and his wife did not help, believing their daughter's fiancé too worldly and irreligious. But the real difficulty lay in Harriet herself, and Alexander was not slow to see it. Later, he wrote, Whatever hopes I had of winning Miss Harriet's hand were very slight. I felt this all the time, and never really expected to succeed. 
and although I allowed myself to entertain some hope, in my secret soul I always felt it was in vain. And in vain it was. Not too long after the engagement was announced, it ended. But the rejected suitor was not despondent for long. He quickly plunged into the work which provided him with all the challenge he needed. The attractions the lovely Harriet provided would not be wholly forgotten, however. In a year or two, he would renew his acquaintance with the Buchanans and meet another daughter of the family. Meanwhile, he continued to advance rapidly in the executive ranks of the Pennsylvania Railroad, always under the vigilant and approving eyes of Thompson and Scott. Unlike some young men raised in comfortable circumstances, young Cassatt did not scorn long hours, uncongenial surroundings, or hard work. He learned to run the cumbersome engines, understand repairs, compute a payroll, and master every facet of railroad maintenance and invention. Western Pennsylvania offered rare opportunities to the ambitious young man in the late 60s, and Cassatt was eager to take advantage of them. The Pennsylvania's revenues had quadrupled during the war years from 5 million in 1860 to $19,500,000 in 1865. Much of this stimulus came from the increase in the anthracite coal industry, which during the Civil War had risen from less than a million to over 10 million tons in production. Per year. Although the Pennsylvania would eventually carry more passengers than any other American road, freight was its real revenue maker, always exceeding passenger income by 150%, which would one day bode ill for passenger service. The railroad was founded on freight carriage, established to transport goods from the west and coal from the hills around Pittsburgh to market in Philadelphia. The passengers who traveled in early discomfort along the 236-mile road were of secondary concern. Now, coal, the cash crop of Pennsylvania, would be augmented by steel from the Pittsburgh furnaces, which converted rapidly from iron production after Bessemer's invention of the stronger alloy in England. Coal, iron, and steel. These were the products which brought profits to the conservative Philadelphia investors who sponsored the railroad. Soon, oil, under Rockefeller's aegis, added significantly to the railroad's income. While the Pennsylvania seemed in an enviable position to take advantage of the boom in Pittsburgh, other railroad men had an eye on a share of the lucrative carriage. The B&O had been temporarily halted and rerouted to Wheeling, but the Erie Road, mismanaged and milked by a former cattle drover, Daniel Drew, and his henchmen, Jim Fisk and Jay Gould, threatened the Pennsylvania's paramountcy. The Erie, a great trunk line nearly 500 miles long, connected New York Harbor and the Great Lakes, but its capital had been watered, its decrepit rolling stock and decaying roadbeds evidence that the owners cared little for the Erie's efficiency and much for its speculative growth. While Drew, Fisk, and Gould manipulated the Erie's stock with the venal cooperation of New York legislators, 
Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt, who had earned a fortune and learned his business practices as a hard-driving steamboat captain, began his bitter fight with the Drew interests for control of the Erie. As a result of the Erie War, railroads and the magnates who managed them garnered a deep-seated public distrust, which exists today. Vanderbilt won another fortune. He grabbed the ownership of the Erie and eventually organized the New York Central to become the Pennsylvania's largest competitor. Drew died disillusioned and penniless. Fisk committed suicide. Only Gould survived to endure the lasting social enmity of Astors and Vanderbilts, prevented by their hostility from joining the ranks of New York society a bitter blow to his family's pretensions. Alexander Cassatt did not meet the redoubtable Vanderbilt until 1870, but he was aware of that tycoon's efforts to manipulate stock, force lower freight rates on the Pennsylvania, and challenge Cassatt's employer, J. Edgar Thompson, on every front. Thompson, like Scott, Roberts, and Cassatt, who followed him in the presidency, was primarily a railroad man dedicated to improving his line. Even the most critical students of the railroad wars have admitted that the Pennsylvania in those days never suffered from the chicanery and speculation which reduced rival roads to mere pawns in their owners' struggles to achieve fortunes on the New York Stock Exchange. One railroad historian has conceded that the Pennsylvania, in contrast to the Erie, New York Central, Northern Pacific, and Union Pacific, never had anything but a succession of conservative directors and able presidents who believed in sticking to the railroad business and making it pay by building up the road as an operating property and fighting off attempts of speculative wizards to use it as a financial football. That assessment changed dramatically after World War II. From the professional reticent Thompson, Alexander Cassatt learned his railroad ethics and his business acumen. He followed these standards throughout his career, often in the face of severe pressures from Congress, presidents, stockholders, and the public. While Thompson concentrated on improving his road, replacing iron rails with steel, double-tracking the main line, standardizing equipment, leasing subsidiary lines, he left the political infighting to his vice president, Thomas A. Scott, who was well-suited to such affairs. The Pennsylvania and almost every other railroad received thousands of acres of free land from state and federal governments for expansion. Cheap transportation was opening the West, and few impediments were put in the way of railroad moguls who took every advantage of government cooperation. It was Scott who persuaded the Pennsylvania State Legislature to keep the B&O out of Pittsburgh for years. In 1864, after a vote denying the Maryland interests access to the Steel City, a member rose to ask, Mr. Speaker, may we not now go scot-free? When Jay Gould threatened to swoop down and take the Pennsylvania's freight traffic from the west to his eerie line, 
Scott's bill to prevent the notorious Gould's success passed through the State House in 34 minutes, surely a record for Pennsylvania legislators. By 1869, the Pennsylvania had extended its influence through leasing subsidiary lines as far west as Indianapolis and St. Louis. Among these lines was the Sudbury and Erie, renamed the Philadelphia and Erie, the line on which Alexander Cassatt would make his mark. Scott was not too busy with his public relations efforts on behalf of the railroad to keep an eye on his protege, and he liked what he saw. In April 1866, Cassatt had been transferred to Williamsport as superintendent of motive power and machinery for the Philadelphia and Erie. One day, Scott appeared in Cassatt's office to check on some items of bookkeeping. Instead of sending for the clerk in charge to look up the queried amounts, Cassatt reeled off the figures. Scott was amazed at his memory. How do you know that? Scott asked the young manager. Oh, I think it's a pretty good scheme to go through the books every few days so that if anything happened in the bookkeeping department, I might not be left in the lurch, he replied. Scott was impressed. Obviously, this was a young man to encourage. From Renovo in January 1867, the rising young executive sent his report to the annual stockholders' meeting on the condition of the motive power of the Philadelphia and Erie, which at that time was operating at a loss to the parent line of over $250,000 a year. Cassatt had decided to alter those figures, and he made a good start during his first year as superintendent. His 90 locomotives were then running a total mileage of 1,429,110, an increase over the previous year of 400,000 miles. But he managed to decrease costs from 55 to 48 cents a mile. He knew the stockholders looked for a healthy return on their investment, but he also believed that his road would only run at maximum efficiency if improvements and repairs were assured. He asked for a larger engine house and 10 new stalls. The expense of car repairs at this point has been largely increased by this want of adequate facilities. I would therefore respectfully urge on your consideration the importance of erecting car and paint shops during the present year. No stranger to repair shop or roundhouse, Alexander Cassatt would never hesitate to sacrifice revenues, even borrow in the millions, for proper maintenance. He had his new shops. He did not remain in the Williamsport office long enough to see them in operation, however, in November 1867, before his 28th birthday, Thompson appointed Cassatt superintendent of machinery and motive power for the entire Pennsylvania road. His new position transferred him to Altoona with a salary of $3,000 a year, a princely sum at a time when a trainman made less than $10 a week. Now he had the position which would enable him to support a wife in comfortable style. Harriet had failed him, but he would soon find a young woman to share his life in Altoona, that bustling, smoky, muddy railroad town 
perched in the midst of the Katanning Mountains. Unfortunately, his wooing would not be as rapid or as unencumbered by problems as his rise through the executive ranks of the railroad. <laughs>